Hey everyone, John and Andrew here. Welcome to the podcast. On today's episode, doing life better. Connecting with our ancestors. And the three best questions you'll ever hear. This is Obstacle Course. Here we go. I sure hope that recorded, by the way. I'm fairly confident it did. It was just the error message scared the bejesus out of me. You can say shit, Andrew. Bejesus. Bejesus. <laughs> what is a bejesus? <laughs> The bejesus. Like bejesus? Bejesus. Oh, like not Jesus Christ. Bejesus. Oh, bejesus. Yeah, okay. That's like Buddha in Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's be honest. Speaking of Marvel heroes, that would be like the biggest fucking superhero in the world. Yeah. Buddha and Jesus, although they probably wouldn't fight. They well, would just love people to death. It's true. <laughs> Which isn't very interesting. It doesn't make good film. No, exactly. So... Don't look for bejesus anytime soon, folks. <laughs> Find him in your heart. Are we recording? <laughs> yeah! <laughs> bejesus. So, have you... Oh, fuck. I'll stop. <laughs> Just, I don't know why. Why do you got to grab onto it? I don't know. You're talking about the... Uh, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about your pop filter. <laughs> my, my pop filter. Yeah. <laughs> We're trying to record an, uh, an introduction here, John. You keep, keep grabbing keep, your pop filter. Yeah, exactly. I'm manhandling it. Um, have you ever had a near-death experience? I would say no. N- no. Fair enough. Why do you ask? Because I have and I wanted to just tell okay. it. <laughs> Should I ask you the question? Hey, John, yeah. have you ever had a near-death experience? Mm, no. <laughs> this is making for... This went poorly. Great audio. <laughs> okay. So I had this job like 20, 25 years ago. I needed a lot of money. And so I got a job. It was a contractor for a hydro company. And what we had to do was we had to dig like three feet down in these, and then wrap these like ooey-gooey bandages across the um, hydro poles. What was the purpose of the ooey-gooey bandage? Yeah, I mean, this stuff was so toxic. Like, if you got a little bit on your arm, it would burn. Um, mm. I've often thought back to how uh, safe that was actually working with. And how carcinogenic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're going to get me worried. Yep. Um, anyways, so the whole thing was, and what appealed to me is, most people, you know, you got paid per hole. I think it was like 20 or per hole, uh, per pole, I guess, per, per hole pole. <laughs> what profession is this? <laughs> per... <laughs> <laughs> go on we, we pay by the hole <laughs> no no way to misinterpret that uh anyway <laughs> anyways so obviously if you could do say 10 in a day then you're making 100 bucks which was you know a little more 25 years ago than it was now but i remember the day i first did 20 and i was like oh my god <laughs> and, and anyways my whole point of this is we would work all day in the city. I, I lived in Manitoba at the time. We'd drive up from Dauphin, Manitoba. If anyone knows Dauphin. I know it's not the city. No, Dauphin is not the city, but we drive to the city, which at the time was Winnipeg. Okay. It's the big Heard of city. It. Yeah. And okay. uh, on the way back, we'd be just exhausted after a week of digging hydro poles um, all day long that uh, we'd take turns driving. And we, we had this company truck we used. And it was one of those trucks, an old truck, just a bench seat in the front. There's room for like really two, but the four of us, four grown adults sat in there. Mm. So it was, it was pretty cozy. Well, How well, did it smell on the way back home? Amazing. It <laughs> smelled between um, sweat 
and, and the ooey gooey um, pull and stuff. And gooey pull stuff. And just, you know, and probably four men in one four cab. Four men, of a truck. yeah, who may or may not have showered all week and just leftover fast food on the clothing and, and mustache. Anyways, so we, I was driving back and it was, it was fairly late and they were all sleeping. And I do not do well driving when other people are sleeping. John, <laughs> to be honest, you don't do well driving most of the time. Man. I am a shit driver. I mean, well, no, I am. I, you were saying it. So, no, you're feeling bad. You don't need to feel no, bad. No, I don't feel bad. I my just employees don't even let me drive, and it's my company and my truck, <laughs> but they don't let me drive. And often you give me a ride back home because <laughs> when you're when we're coming to the podcast studio, <laughs> yeah. you kind of go by my house, and I often have you pick me up. And <laughs> yep. no word of a lie. You don't know the way back, and it's like seven minute drive every time. And if I don't say anything, you take you immediately take a wrong turn. <laughs> I know I'm a shit driver, and part of it is Google Maps, and I'm blaming Google Maps because we have lost the ability to remember directions because we just you know listen to the lady in the box. That's what you. <laughs> that's what we call her. I call her Fiona. Ah, well, Fiona, thank goodness you have her, or else we probably would never have met. You'd be lost in uh, northern Manitoba. Do you know why I call her Fiona? No. Fiona Apple. Oh, uh, clever. Yeah. No. Okay, so you were driving home, <laughs> okay. and everybody yeah. was asleep. Everyone was asleep, and I'm thinking, boy, that looks that looks awesome, what they're doing right there. And I, I could tell I was starting to nod off a little bit. Well, I got behind the semi, and I don't like being behind semis because I get very, very impatient. And so for the next, for about 15 minutes after that, I, I basically played the game of when can I pass? Yeah. Well, in the road we took from Dauphin to, Man to, to uh, Winnipeg, it's very long, rolly, hilly roads, long, rolly, hilly roads. So not optimal for passing. In fact, you're, you're really not allowed to. Well, I was behind him for about 15 minutes and I was doing the whole thing where you kind of pull out, you look, and then you're like, ah, better not. You pull mm -hmm. back, you pull out, you know, pull back, pull out, pull back. Finally, one time I'm like, fuck it. I'm so freaking frustrated. And so I just went, gunned it. That's when I realized this truck had nothing. I mean, pedal, <laughs> pedal all the way to the floor. And it just kind of went. <laughs> and, and then it began to think about going. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, my God. And by then I was like, like halfway you know, alongside the semi. So, you know how long semis are? I'm yeah. at, at like the halfway point of the semi, <laughs> if that makes sense. So I'm going, going, going. All of a sudden we start coming to a hill, start going down, and I see another semi coming in the other lane. Oh, at that point, I began <laughs> to, I knew I couldn't panic or we'd all die. And so what I did is I, is I tried to stand up and push the pedal even harder down to the floor. So my whole body was off the floor and I was like pushing, didn't help at all. And, and uh, the semi was getting closer and closer and closer. And what ended up happening is there was no way I could get past that other semi in time. And I didn't have time to just like jam on the brakes and get behind the semi. So I swear to this day, the two semi drivers communicated somehow, maybe by radio. And he just moved over a bit. <laughs> wow. and, and he went right beside me. And for wow. a split second there, I was like, you know, I was like, you know, clothed in semi <laughs> and the other guys yeah so were, but the other guys were yeah. they still completely asleep so the this time? is the thing they, at that time they had been sleeping and and for that two minutes it was probably two minutes it felt like an hour it probably two minutes i lost complete track of anything else besides just i gotta i gotta get all this situation so when he passed i finally you know blew ahead got ahead of the semi kept going 
and then started breathing again, sat back down because I, you know, I'd been standing up on the accelerator, sat back down. And, and that's when I was like, all right, I'm, <laughs> I'm not the only one in this truck. And I remember just looking over. <laughs> and to this day, I will never forget the look on their faces. They were all like basically sitting on each other's lap because they had like all just like slid over. And, and and they were just looking at me with this look of like horror and just judgment and and also maybe two percent of their look was like slightly impressed because that that was a that was a badass thing you just did. <laughs> and um, Harold, um, I'll never forget this. Harold, he's a man of few words. He just looked at me and he's like, John. He's like, I want to get home in one piece, not six. And then he literally just. Put his head, put his head back down, and fell back asleep. That was all he said about it. John, I want to get home in one piece, not six. But for those two minutes, there there was a point where I believed this is it. I I I probably will die, and I'm going to kill these other nice lads alongside me. Mm-hmm. Um, did I see my ancestors at that moment? No. No. Did, did I see, you know, they say, you know, at moment of death, you may see your ancestors or you may see your loved ones. Nothing flashed bef- before my eyes except, you know, what a dumbass I was. <laughs> That's all I was thinking about. What, like, what am I doing? That's what you want your final thoughts to be. Yeah, what a dumbass Man, I'm I am. an idiot. Yeah. So that's <sighs> that's kind of my only story of near-death experience. So, where... great story. Yeah. Um, I... Part of me is curious whether I give you that same look that those guys give you every time you're driving me home and you take the wrong turn. <laughs> yeah, it's not I've seen the same, that look. Not the same wrong turn. It's a, a different wrong turn gift every every time. And you're not impressed at all. <laughs> That's <laughs> the other thing. <laughs> yeah, that 2% doesn't exist. Um, uh, and it probably didn't for them either. They're, you're probably just imagining. I, I read that. into that. Oh, it's pretty yeah. badass, eh? <laughs> no, there's dumbass. There's a big difference. Yeah. Okay, so... Great story, John. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Uh, please tell us why this is important. Well, because this whole episode, we talk about death and, and we even talked about near-death experiences and we don't like to talk about death at all. And uh, and I, for one, don't even like to really think about death. And I, I opened up about that uh, for about 30 years. I really never thought about death because I was religious and I knew what was going to happen after I die. And then all of a sudden I didn't believe that stuff anymore. And all of a sudden I was had to deal with the fact that I'm going to die and I have no idea what's going to happen. I don't even know when I'm going to die. And it was, it was terrifying. Yeah. It's the great mystery. And yeah. we're, we're on a bit of a death kick right now. Yeah. We are. And, and uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. which <laughs> who knew, I yeah. mean, these things just happen and, yeah. and uh, it's been amazing and it's weird even finding myself saying that, but one thing, so I'm going to pay homage to Bo Burnham who we oh, love. Yeah. We love him. And, yeah. He, in one of his songs on an unrelated topic, he basically says... Please sing it. I don't, I don't have it perfectly, but okay. it's... We'll keep kicking this dead horse when it stops spitting out money. Yes, I know that one. Yeah, and, I know and, that one. well, that's kind of crude. That's how I feel about these death conversations, is that this is a topic that is, uh, as Shauna, one of our guests today, describes it, it's bringing things out of darkness or mm-hmm. shadow into light and that's what one of her um purposes in the work that she does is and yeah it's been we've had three somewhat death focused episodes but really the the moral of them is that it's life focused and it's life giving and there's a, a ton of beauty in it and it's about taking advantage of every moment that we have because time is the only finite resource out there in addition to oil and 
um, we we need to yeah. we need to take advantage of it, or else we're going to get to the end of our lives and and perhaps not feel as complete as as we could have. So it's about having this conversation, thinking ahead. What is my life going to look like? What do I want it to look like? What legacy do I want to live? And these conversations have definitely shaped my life. And today's is, is one of the best examples of that. Linda and Shauna have varying perspectives, but they make an amazing team with one another. And Linda herself talks about presence and focusing on the thing, the task yeah. at hand and how much that gives her. And it's a, a very valuable perspective. So I encourage you to, to listen to that and perhaps learn something from it. So yeah, we've, uh, this has been a fun little intro. Thank you for the story. And uh, please take me to Whole Foods, not in six pieces. Yes, let's go. I'm starving. Thanks, everybody. Enjoy. Oh, yeah. Can you tell me the way? <laughs> Linda Hunter and Shauna Jans, welcome officially to the podcast. Linda, we've known each other for a few years now mm-hmm. and met Shauna through the Deathly Matters conference that you both put on. And we've been waiting for this for a while now and it's uh, it's very exciting to have you both here on Obstacle Course. Yes, you heard that right. They are both here. This is our first four-person recording. It's a two-on-two. Yeah, it's a two-on-two. Normally we outnumber our guests. Yeah. But not today. So. Yeah, now the power is equaled and shared. Watch out. I know, I'm scared. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is great. So we thought a good place to start was about um, the origin of Deathly Matters and how that all came to be. And it was a really amazing full day conference that uh, we just released the episode from. And uh, we'd love to hear about how it came to be. Well, we live in this beautiful small community of Victoria where everyone seems to know everyone. And so as Linda and I have been um, kind of reminiscing on how our paths crossed, it wasn't it wasn't actually a, you know, a big sparky meet. It was like we started to get to know each other through different people, through different communities. And um, and about two years ago, we worked together to bring uh, a speaker here, Sarah Kerr, who's a death midwife and is also working in the field of death and dying and, and spiritual uh, ritual technologies to support that. And we had a blast mm-hmm. together creating that event. And from that, um, I initiated a holistic death care gathering of which Linda was a big part of. And our paths just continued to cross and support one another and we got to know each other. And I think it really, we started talking about what, what else can we create in the community that meets this need and, and allows people to come together because we were really seeing from the death care gatherings that we're meeting once a month that there was just such interest and such momentum. And, and so what really kind of finalized this idea and this vision was uh, I held a strategic visioning session for this community to say, where do we go next? What's needed? And from that, uh, it really crystallized for Linda and I that, yeah, we want to we wanna join up and co-vision a larger event to bring people together. Well, and to be honest, when Andrew first shot me the email and said, hey, man, we got booked at a death conference, I was like, 
what's that? <laughs> <laughs> like, what is that? First of all, and and tell me more. Yeah. And I'd never even heard of such an idea. Like, there's actually a conference on death where people come around and spend a day talking about death. So I had my first impression was like, it's going to be kind of uh, frightening, and uh, I don't know how it's go. I don't know how it's going to go. But uh, the day ended up just being one of the most interesting, hopeful conferences I've ever been to. And uh, and it was sold out, right? Yes, Linda? it was. Yeah. Yes, we're so grateful. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to touch a little bit on what Shauna said and, and to add that for me, um, it was a unnatural to have a conference because I'm a conference planner. Event planning is what I do. It's what I've done I think since I was 10, but officially, you know, in my Mm -hmm. 20s, I became a conference planner. And so for for us, when we talked about how to open the conversation, for me, it it was a natural. It was like, oh, we need a conference. And then after that, I just became overwhelmed with the idea of a conference (laughs) because it's really it's a really big undertaking. But it was now we know it was absolutely the right thing to do. And so grateful that it was so long and that so many people came like you said it was sold out and that so many people were willing to open and are still willing to continue that conversation so yeah what conferences were you planning when you were 10 linda i was just bringing the neighborhood together you know little events and things like that that's cool so it's always puppet shows things for kids to do in the summertime yeah lots of planning all the family events i remember puppet shows andrew yeah are you too young for this um I Careful. Actually, do you know what puppets are? I'm aware of puppets. <laughs> uh, I, I remember I, I, the one puppet show I was part of, uh, and I haven't thought about this for a number of years. Um, it was I was like reenacting a Greek myth. I think Perseus and Medusa, because uh, Perseus slayed Medusa. And you're acting like we wouldn't know that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll take some, your word for some it. Some might. Um, but uh, the thing that is really in my memory is I couldn't stop laughing through the whole thing. I, I think nervous laughter, right. and, and I just couldn't stop. And I, I don't think I did very well because I was, like, crying, laughing. Are those puppets at, actually alive? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's scary. Anyways. And, anyways. Hence, you're not an event planner. No. Yeah. No. Uh, but I appreciate event planners because they make my job and my other life a lot easier. And, yeah, and sure. that is the thing that comes to mind from... Our experience of the conference it was it meticulously planned and it shows your expertise and it's a really nice uh, transfer of skills to to be able to put something on that you're both passionate about and bring great speakers together but the actual organization of it was was really well done thank you we're a great team mm-hmm. so why death big question sure um why death so I think there's about maybe three streams of influence in my own life that really brings me to where I am now and in this beautiful collaboration with Linda. One is that I'm really motivated in my life to create spaces that um, allow for deeper and transformative connection with ourselves, with each other, and that which is larger than us all, however we name that. And also because of this, I'm also very aware and feel motivated to start to do what I can to contribute to shedding light on those things that oftentimes get relegated to uh, the shadow aspect of our Western dominant kind of overculture is what I'll, I'll call it. So my own work uh, for the last decade has been in the field of healing through grief and loss and, and trauma and of course death, but many any type of change or transition. And 
you know, grief is one one thing that's stigmatized uh, in this culture. So is so is death. And yet what I found in my own experience and what I found in creating spaces, whether it's one on one work or creating group process and ways to come together in community is that the more we come into touch with our own full breadth of lived experience, including grief, and the more we actually start to come into back into relationship with death as a part of life, the closer we get to actually living. To me, it's really life affirming. It allows us to really be present and to really value the quality of what it means to be in this preciousness of life and the uniqueness that it has for all of us. And, and then that third stream, I'm also very aware that if we live in a dominant culture that, that relegates these things to something that's not spoken about, then you have a whole population of people who carry the gifts of how to tend to these places in our lives mm-hmm. that aren't getting seen or witnessed or nurtured for the beauty and the caring, and the support that they bring. And so how, for me, it's really important, like, how do we uplift this? How do we create community spaces so this dialogue can happen, so we can support each other? You name it. So that's that's where I'm coming from. Um, and it's been such a privilege to work alongside Linda. And it just, yeah, it's it makes my heart burst. So <laughs> It's not so much a death conversation, but a life conversation. And, and waiting until the prospect of death is is the wrong, the wrong way to go. And that's, I remember you saying on another podcast that what, what brought you to this, Linda, was you were realizing families were getting to the end and having to talk about death and they had actually not even talked about it yet. I mean, they had just begun the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So that is part of my experience that I've had in um, as a volunteer in palliative care at the San Penn Hospital. So, you know, when you're in palliative, that's an indication that you're probably getting close to end of life. And I would find myself in the kitchen on my Saturday morning shift talking to families and them asking me, how do we have this conversation with our mom who is in palliative care or who's really close or is actively dying? And so that started me thinking about, you know, when you grow up a certain way, you think everyone does that, that, you know, like Mm -hmm. the puppet show thing, because we had a lot of those. (laughs) Um, So I grew up in a house where death was always spoken about it was it was something you could talk about at dinner in fact we did talk about it at dinner and so i just thought everyone was having those conversations and then when i'd go to school and you know kids would tell me that something was going on in the family but that nobody was talking about it yeah. and i and and then as i grew older and had more life experiences lots and lots of those experiences i can honestly say were related to, to death starting with you know a young teenager who was a friend of mine who committed who died by suicide And so for me, I guess I didn't realize until I got much older that every step we take leads us to where we are. And so for the longest time, this has been my path. I just didn't recognize it until very recently. Mm. Yeah. So a couple of questions that I think both of you are are referring to um, in, in terms of the stigmas in our Western culture, because it's it's unique somewhat to our Western culture that it is stigmatized. And that it isn't spoken about commonly. Why do you think that might be? And, and what are some of those other stigmas about death or grief that are not helpful? What comes to me in this moment is that 
for example, grief is a learned skill. We don't come, we don't, we're not born into the world knowing the skills of grieving. We, we feel emotions and we express emotions or we don't, but how to actually be with those emotions, how to express them in, in healthy and life affirming ways, how to know what kind of supports are around, um, is a learned skill. And I would say that, uh, any of the spectrum of what it means to tend to end of life is also learned skills. And so, for many of us, the passing on of these teachings through our own ancestral life ways have been disrupted, and for some of us, for a very, very long time. And so that, none of this is actually new, but it is a, a reclaiming movement, is, is, is how, how I think of it. And when we live in a fast-paced, modern, Western culture that has that is so steeped in the values of capitalism and and is really um, formed on a legacy of colonialism. The values of, of in order to be meaningful, you have to be productive um, and just really narrow ideas of what success is and such an individual notion like, like individual success. It really compromises and does a disservice to these things such as healing through grief, which of course it gets stigmatized in that kind of context because grief moves at the pace of a sloth, you know, like it's mm-hmm. it's not productive mm-hmm. it, and it goes against mm-hmm. um, and same with death. You know, we live in a culture that wants to wants to have more and more control about elongating life and medicalization i'm not i'm not saying that it, there haven't been absolutely necessary advancements in the medical field that that improve our quality of life but there i've seen a, a it comes to a point where it becomes a death denying culture or a death phobic culture and when a culture becomes phobic about something such as grief or death then all of experiences of grief and death become traumatic because we're not living in a context that embraces it and leans into that relationship rather than trying to control and and um well take control of it right so that's that's what comes to me in this moment Hmm. do you think the or how do you think the decrease in religious spirituality comes into play in the increase in line with the increase with death phobia or, or a, a similar term? I know that question was for you, but I'm going to start to answer it because I, w- I was raised in a conservative religious background where I did not fear death for 30 years because I knew exactly what was going to happen. I was going to go to heaven because I, I, was, I was right in my, in my beliefs. Um, and then I lost my faith. And then my fear of death began. And I've struggled with it for the last decade, Mm -hmm. uh, on and off, because there is no longer the certainty. And it's it's interesting because, of course, there's no certainty around death. I mean, it's the biggest mystery there is. We don't know what's going to happen. And and that's where that's where I I sit now. Mm-hmm. And and so when you when Andrew asked that question, it, it hit me right away. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that as well. On I'm not someone who grew up steeped in a religious tradition. I think, you know, what I'm hearing in your experience, and I think what, what's important underneath any of the particular uh, lived experiences or beliefs that we come from, is 
what works for us, however that is, whether that's through a, a formal religious context or a spiritual one or a cultural system or a family tradition is how do we bring support and understanding to this and how do we have the conversations to understand well how what do we believe about death and dying and I what 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 stands out for me in this moment is that oftentimes in the religious context it has allowed us a narrative about what happens after death. And if we step out of that context, then maybe that's the piece that all of a sudden kind of comes into question. And I would say if any of us go far back enough in our own ancestries, even before a lot of the formalized religions took place or when they weren't as institutionalized, there were in every culture had some kind of narrative about what happens after death. Mm -hmm. And that relationship would continue on. So part of what we're seeing is the disruption not only of these uh, teachings coming down through our lineages, but also the fact that many of us, even if we've forgotten those ways, to be in connection with our own ancestors and to continue tending to the dead even after they've dropped their body is a normal uh, practice. Mm. And and it, there's, I think there's some kind of reassurance there that when we die, when we drop our bodies, we still have a community and a culture that tends to us, that cares for us. And that relationship just looks different. It doesn't actually end. And so that would be the context that uh, I would invite people to be curious about. And, and for many of us, myself included, I didn't grow up with any of these uh, understandings or teachings. It's something that I'm relearning and trying to find in my own ancestral life ways about what that looked like. Well, what's the us that continues after we drop our, bar- our body? I'm curious of what you meant by that. Yeah. And I think some Beautiful. of our listeners will Beautiful. as well. Beautiful, yeah. So if we look at a few cross-cultural tenets of death and dying, what we find is that across cultures, there's there's an understanding that something exists after death some kind of consciousness, uh, different words are used in different contexts. And there's a cross-cultural understanding through historical time and geography that the dead can change, that there's a relationship that happens, that the dead and the living are still in communication and it's a reciprocal relationship and that we can tend tend to those. Those relationships are still worthy of tending to. And so... If you look at, you know, if you look at burial rites and uh, archaeological records, you can look at religious uh, contexts. And I mean, there's so many different um, entry points, but there's it's it's uh, not I'm not going to say universal. I I don't I don't want to use that word, but there's a general um, cross-cultural view that something exists after death. Mm. Maybe it's soul, maybe it's spirit, maybe um, it's relating to the ancestors. Okay, thank you. And so for me, when you talked about how you were raised and how you knew you were going to heaven, I was raised with a dad who identified as atheist and a mom who identified as agnostic. So there was no conversation in our house about religion or faith, except that if you wanted to explore that, you could certainly do that. And when we asked my mom, would you take us to church? Would you take us to a synagogue? She took us. So she was open to us learning, but there was nothing in our house that resembled anything around that faith-based community at all. So when we talked about death at home, we talked a lot about death being a natural process but my parents always said everything after that was a mystery was unknown they never said that anything negative or positive was going to happen just that it was a mystery so 
I've loved getting to know Shauna and all of the work that she's done and learning more and more about that possibility that there is more because I grew up thinking there was just a big black hole at the other side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not yeah. a scary black hole, but yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's that whole idea of the unknown that mm-hmm. makes people leery or terrified <laughs> or somewhere in between. And especially today when we we're in the age of information and you can get information on anything, you know, pre-life from the moment of conception to to birth that's all we we know everything about that we know what's happening in the cosmos but we don't know that one thing that what happens after our bodies stop working or mm-hmm. whatever so i think that adds to it is how do we get okay with the unknowing which in previous societies there's a, a sense of confidence or serenity with not knowing but now we must know everything we must have all the information all the time at our fingertips which is problematic I'm, I'm curious if you think perhaps you know you described our individual individ, individualistic culture and our this this feeling of us we have to be productive this egoic kind of approach to life that has kind of stepped away from community and sharing and belonging. And I wonder if that coincides with, with a fear of death, because perhaps is it the eagle that fears death because it's fearing its own demise? And we all have an ego and it's not going away. And it knows one day it's, it's time is up for forever. And, and the ego doesn't like mystery. Perhaps I'm just thinking about myself right now a little bit, and I'm wondering if other people might might re- relate to this. The whole idea of I move when I lost my religious faith, I moved from a community and certainty into my own path, and then it was me and my ego figuring life out. And sometimes the ego was louder and and took the reins, and that's when I I've noticed my fear of the unknown is worse, and so. By, by practicing meditation and things like that and learning to quiet the ego, I find at the same time, this whole notion of fear of death begins to go away. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if there's a connection there. And I also want to say by being part of that death community at the conference, I had no fear all day long. I mean, it was great. I was like, let's talk about this all day long. Like normally I would be like, oh, I don't want to talk about that. And, and so I wonder if there's a connection between ego community mm-hmm. and the fear of death somewhere. Let's throw that out there and see if you want to comment on that. This is me kind of reflecting. Yeah, I really appreciate that share. Um, what comes to me in this moment, and I, I really resonate with everything you shared, and what, yeah, what comes to me is I think there's a profound yearning that we all have that we are remembered. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think if we can truly know that we've lived this life in the in I mean, it hasn't said the best way possible. Life is life and we do what we can and we, you know, hopefully strive to be ethical and to be in our wholeness and to love. And and I would say ego, yes, all those things. We're also steeped in a culture. So compassion, because we're steeped in a culture that really uplifts ego and intellect over body, heart, mind. And I know Linda, this is close to her heart. Yeah. Um, and I think... I think having those conversations can also heart, start to soften the the 
the tightness and the holding that ego will have uh because ego wants to be remembered yes 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 and for me um john any fear that i had earlier about end of life or dying has been replaced with um, love and trust and the way I live my life which is I aspire to walk a path of grace and to be open to possibility and so I know that fear and love can't share the same space and so when I'm feeling fearful about anything related to end of life for those I love or even for my own thoughts about my own end I just replace them with love and trust Mm. and it seems to be working Mm. I love that how do you begin to make that shift? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a slow, I think it's a slow, organic move from one side to the other. And I think that one thing that I've done for many years, I, I've had lots of fears throughout my life and I've worked hard to not overcome them, but to manage them. And one of the things that I've learned about myself that helps is to become more curious about those things of which I'm afraid. So I have moved closer and leaned into things that are uncomfortable and have tried to learn more because I've found that the more information I have and the more understanding I have, the less I fear anything, not just death, but other things that I've been afraid of. So it's been slow and steady, but it's been um, sure. So I haven't fallen back. Hmm. Is there an example that that you could speak to that, that comes to mind? for that shift? Yeah, several. So um, one really big one I would say would be um, the death of my mother-in-law. So when we we had moved to Vancouver Island, um, had made a decision to raise our family on Vancouver Island with um, my parents so that we had uh, intergenerational living and they would be raised with their grandparents. We are a tiny little family. My family had, I have no other relatives in Canada other than my immediate family. So it was really important to us as a family to be raised, raising our kids with their, with their um, grandparents. Mm-hmm. And not long after we arrived on Vancouver Island, we had a call to say that our father-in-law, my father-in-law was um, ill and had been diagnosed with cancer and that we should come. So we did what everybody does. We bought the plane ticket and we packed our bags and we went for a two or three week visit. We weren't sure how long that would be. And we stayed for a couple of weeks and we found out that my father-in-law would have a very short time left and we made a plan that we would come back every three months. That made sense to us. We had three children, we had a life, we had a mortgage and parents back home and we thought, well, we'll go every three months. Five weeks later, he was gone and we got that other call. You need to come and help us plan a funeral. Mm. Four months after my father-in-law died, my mother-in-law was diagnosed with cancer. And so we made that trip again But this time when we made the trip, again, it was for two weeks with our, you know, bags packed and our little children in tow. When we got there, she asked us not to leave. Mm -hmm. And I was like, "Uh, we, you don't want us to leave here. And she said, you need to stay with me until I die. And I thought, well, that's not possible. We live 3000 miles away. We have children in school. We have parents living there and bills to pay and we have jobs. But my husband and I have been very good throughout our entire marriage of asking ourselves really important questions, um, a series of questions that have always led us to the right answer. And so we didn't take us long to figure out that the right answer was to stay. Hmm. We were quite sure we'd lose our jobs, possibly our house. We weren't quite certain how my parents would react having had them move in with us not long before that. And we weren't sure how our children would be. They were young. They were nine, five and five. 
But it was an easy decision because it was based on love. And she asked us and there was no way to say no to that. And we were like, no, we're going to do this. I have to say it was the scariest, one of the scariest things I've ever done personally, but it was the best year of my life. Mm-hmm. We, we, our employers held our jobs for us. Our families brought everything we needed for us. We didn't go home. So we came with two weeks worth of clothing, no toys, nothing for the children. We had to de-enroll them in school and enroll them in another school. There's all kinds of lessons that we learned in that year, almost year of taking care of her. No regrets at all. Just a series of really scary moments that we traveled together and worked out together and as a family. You know, you can do anything with love and really good information and good medical care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A beautiful story, Linda. And one thing that stood out to me was what an honor that was for her to ask you mm-hmm. to be there mm-hmm. in, her, in her final mm-hmm. moments. I mean, what a tremendous honor. And I actually thanked her for that because as she said, she that question came out of fear. She was afraid to die without us there. She mm-hmm. had her daughter there as well. She was afraid to die without us there, but I thanked her more than a few times over that next almost 10 months because it really was a, a gift and an honor. And I can tell you my children learned lessons they could not have learned in any other way. Yeah, and I was I was with my dad in his final moments as well. I woke up and, and I was beside him in the hospital and I woke up in the morning and, and he was dead. And I feel like my grief has been mitigated because of that i feel like it's been normal but mm-hmm. it hasn't been it it hasn't been despair i just miss him mm-hmm. and i i think being there in the last moments with somebody um really is is crucial absolutely crucial and, and uh, yeah so i share i share an understanding with that i'm curious about some of those questions that you and your husband have asked of yourselves that have been so elemental in in such situations? So there's three big ones, lots of little ones, but the three important ones are, we often ask ourselves, what are we afraid of? Which to me is almost the same as what are we resisting? But I think when you go to your heart instead of your head, it's an easier answer. So Mm. we would ask ourselves in many situations, uh, what are we afraid of? And we often write them down. I certainly always write them down. And the second question we uh, will ask ourselves sometimes is, what would love do here? Because that really is the answer for me for everything. And so um, when you ask yourself that question, so for example, with my mother-in-law, we knew what we were afraid of. It was a really long list. Most of it was practical and not really related to love at all or living and dying, mostly, you know, pragmatic things. Those things can all be sorted out. What would love do here was an easy one. We would stay. And the third question we ask ourselves, which is the opposite of what many people ask themselves is, what is the best possible thing that could happen? Most people go to the what's the worst case scenario. Yeah. That's that's easy. I, we can figure out all the worst case scenarios, but I think we should instead steer ourselves towards what's the best possible outcome. And for us, the best possible outcome was that my mother-in-law would have a more beautiful and um, loving and warmer death, having those she loved beside her and helping her navigate. But also we thought our children would just be better human beings for having been through the process and those life lessons they learned at nine five and five they still talk about now i was just going to ask what what are some of those some of those lessons yeah 
Uh, I learned that we have more strength than we uh, can ever possibly imagine and that we have more support than we could ever know and that the universe actually conspires to assist us, not the other way around. And that if you can take one step into something that's super uncomfortable or scary or really sad, there will be someone there to take your hand. I have never felt alone or not lifted up in any of these situations. And I think we just have to learn to trust and to know that there is a community of care and they will be there for you. I don't know if I can still share, if there's time to share a little story, but when we first got, we, we fr are from Ontario, so we knew the town we were going back to. We had old friends there, and so we were very lucky. We had that community. But the house that we lived in, which was my mother-in-law's, was in an area that we weren't that familiar with, but our children did not know at all, and they were young. And when we went to the school to say, we need to bring our children to school here for possibly almost a year, the principal said, um, okay, what do you need? Which is the question we have always asked in our family, what do you need? And so I said, I need support because there are many times, I'm sure, I wasn't quite sure, but I understood that chemotherapy can be very difficult for some. And I said, I will need some support because I'm not sure I can get here every day to pick up the children. And he pointed to three women standing in the parking lot and said, they're your people. Go and talk to those three women, they'll help you. So I went out and I introduced myself and I told them my story and they said, we'll do it. We'll pick your children up. We'll let them come home with us. We'll get them their snack. We'll wait. If, if you're too late, we'll give them dinner. I had to trust these women who I knew had children. So I thought, okay, that's a good start. Um, I had to trust that they would take good care of, of our kids. And there were many days when I didn't make it home. My children are still in touch with some of those young kids who are now in their 30s. They were like angels, angels to me, those women. But it, I, I, I should have known from the other things that were happening that it's going to be okay and someone will step forward or be standing in the parking lot. Wow. Yeah, the power of asking the right questions. Mm -hmm. It's, um, yeah, that's a really incredible. And I know your children uh, quite well. Uh, and they're, you did the right thing and asked the right questions because... Um, they are some amazing people and, and very full people as well. Whole is maybe the, the term I was looking for. And I just like I would just like to reflect back this this beautiful story that Linda has just shared, and it just really goes to show Linda like how much you live in that place of trust and being okay, like despite the fears, to allow things to not to not know. To not fully know, but to trust and take each step, even if you only know that one step and you don't know the long-term view. And I think that, you know, to swing that back to our earlier conversation about the larger context that we're in, like, how do we, how do we learn how to live in that way? And for me, what I see is that there's been no, there's been no turning away or closing down. It's, it's been, we grieve, we, we we're together, we're connected, what's the next step? And this allows, and I see you just being such an embodied, beautiful example of this, is how to continue having an open heart to be responsive and trusting of that which comes. Mm -hmm. Great. There, there's a quote from Marcus Aurelius. Originally, I thought it was just from the movie Gladiator, but he was... <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, that's too smart for a Gladiator. Uh, 
So where did that come from? It was actually Marcus Aurelius, and I, I'm, I'm sure you probably know which one I'm referring to. And it's the famous quote they used on all the movie trailers that um, death smiles at us all. All we can do is smile back. And, and I'm reflecting on that in, in this moment in, in what we're talking about. And I think that's probably for a lot of our listeners, the ultimate question. How can you get to a place where you can truly smile back at death? Not in a way of, of, of being dismissive of your actual feelings, because I think you need to be there with your feelings and, and not live in, a, live in a state of denial necessarily. But, but how can you truly, death's coming, it's going to affect us all, um, everyone we know, and, and smile knowing that the mystery will carry us through or there's a community that can carry us through. What are some practical tips you can give um, our listeners on how they can learn to smile at, at the, the inevitable that's coming. Um, wow, no pressure here eh, on these questions. <laughs> for me, it, uh, that question takes me to the death of my mom, who lived with us for 20 years and died with us. And I think for my mom, what made it easier for her and easier for us is she was real. Mm. So we... We, I'm not sure she was smiling at death, although she was uh, pretty good, pretty happy when she was going. But um, I think for her, because she had the conversations and because she was real and because she cried when she needed to and told us when she was scared and told us when it was okay and talked about the party that she wanted us to have when she left and because she was honest and, and was open to being vulnerable about the whole thing, it made it so much easier. And, you know, my mom's people who've read my blog know that my mom's uh, final words were, I've had a fantastic ride before mm. she closed her eyes. And I thought, man, if I can go home saying that, wow. uh, I'll be in a good place too. And so I'm not sure about smiling at it, but for sure it made it so much easier to be so real about it. And I think what happens to a lot of us is that we get caught up in the person leaving us as opposed to them leaving and I think we get caught up in what we will miss and what we, we want it to, we want them to be here longer and we want to have more time. I would have loved more time with my mom, but I think we get a little too wrapped up in that and we maybe forget to look at the person who's going mm -hmm. and to ask them what it is they want. And I remember for my dad, he said, I'm not afraid of dying, I'm afraid of suffering. And as soon as they mm -hmm. told him he wasn't gonna suffer, he was like, I'm good with this. Uh. Because he was good with it, we were good with it. And you know, my mom said to all of us, you need to be okay with dying because mm -hmm. I'm okay with it. You need to be okay with it too. It just made it made mm -hmm. it easier. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. That, that's something that I recall you saying at the conference as well, is that it's, it is often harder for everyone around the, the person who's dying the closest people they're the ones who are inevitably suffering so it's so important for the person who's ending their life to be okay and to give that gift on unto the people around them and and there was uh, i think there were other there was one other little segment of words that your your mom said last that was in the end of your blog her uh, final two sentences were, you've been an awesome daughter and I've had a fantastic ride. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Pretty amazing gift. It's powerful. So I thought we could transition to Shauna. You um, had a transformative experience about two years ago that really um, 
created a transition or, or was a, a very meaningful piece of this puzzle, if you could speak to. Yeah, thank you. Um, I guess my entryway into all of this work is, is a bit different than, um, you know, I actually, I haven't been around anyone in their final moments, although I'm navigating with my mom right now all these conversations as she's also living with cancer and and I can say I also feel very fortunate that she's quite direct and frank and realizing what a gift that is. Um, so a little bit of background is, which is relevant to this, it was a car accident that I had two years ago, um, but just a little bit of background. And this is something that it took me a long time to learn how to speak about or to even recognize in my own life. And it's been really um, healing for me to even recognize that other people can resonate with this story. But one of the kind of gateways into grieving for me has been what I call spiritual grief. And so it was this profound grief and sadness and yearning uh, for becoming incarnate in the first place. There was a bit of, it felt like an abandonment from spirit, actually, to come into this singular body. And I really struggled to be here in life fully embodied. And it took me years to recognize this. And of course, other losses and developmental traumas and experiences just kind of exacerbated this feeling of, I don't belong here. This isn't home, like this, this earth, this incarnate life. And, you know, I did a lot of healing work um, of various modalities to come into my body more, to be more committed to being here. And, and it was, uh, kind of under, underlying, um, uh, depression, uh, uh, yeah, an episode of depression I had through my late 20s, through my late teens and early twenties, um, my own relationship with being suicidal, all of these things. And, and I've done a lot of healing work and I thought like I'd really kind of reconciled this. And then two years ago, um, I got in a fairly serious car accident where I was way up north uh, Vancouver Island and it was just pouring with rain and I was going I was going too fast um, and I hydroplaned and and luckily I mean those are really there's they're very narrow roads it's very um, there's not very many people in that area it's lucky if you pass one car in an hour and I was about three hours to my destination after a workshop and I was kind of just really committed to getting there. And I'm very fortunate there's no one else on the other road. I think it would have been fatal otherwise, but I hydroplaned several times. And as this was happening though, uh, I felt the presence of my own ancestors. So those people who'd come before me uh, and I'm very aware and intuitively aware of this. And so I was, you know, I could kind of have this ominous feeling that I couldn't stop, but I was like, why are all my people here? And then I had the accident. I went over a cliff and embankment and ended up in the trees. But as that was happening, I let go. I said, ah, this is it. A bunch of people flashed before my eyes. All my ancestors were there and I thought I'm dying. And so I let go and I just kind of floated out of my body because this is something that was actually quite accessible to me because of the spiritual grief I've been living with. And it wasn't that moment that scared me. And it wasn't that moment that I come back to as I've been healing from this accident, which miraculously I walked away from physically totally fine. It was the moment when my car stopped in by a tree that, and the moment I like snapped back into my body, that's the moment I continue to come back to when, and it still makes me emotional because mm -hmm. this is actually the moment that I became more embodied in a way that I never thought possible. Mm -hmm. And I had re recognized the exquisiteness 
of being in this life and the profound support I have not only of the people who are living with me but of all my ancestors who gave me a little bit of tough love to say you know it's it's time that you fully embrace your lived life and really step into your wholeness really step into the gifts that are flowing through you and live them because you have this unique opportunity to be in this embodied incarnate self and to to do this and the world needs you the world needs all of us how do we support each other to come into our wholeness to recognize the unique gifts and medicines that we all carry and so it's been this situation this this yeah this accident which you know that's a funny word for it i believe it was no accident it was it was an event that really showed me a whole lot of tough love about what it means to actually fully fully be here and life has been changing in the last two years um for in profound ways and scary ways talking about stepping out of comfort mm. zones and stretch zones and um yeah let me leave it there that's mm-hmm. thank you so much for sharing that powerful story mm-hmm. one of my biggest takeaways was death is not a solitary journey it's not meant to be taken on our own we are surrounded by our ancestors we're surrounded with a community and and when we um, connect into that it's it's possible we can make that journey mm-hmm. and and we can we can make it more fully and we can make it in in peace and and life not being a solitary journey yeah, as well yeah there's uh more people around us than than maybe we are conscious of I, i'm really interested in that connection with the ancestors mm-hmm. that didn't begin with that moment uh, but had already began when did you first start becoming aware of that and how did you begin to learn about it more deeply yeah thank you one of the gifts of first coming into this life not feeling like i totally wanted to be here is that i had a really rich spiritual life ever since i was a child so i was oftentimes walking more in spirit world than i was here in incarnate planes and so it's been learning how to use more discernment and boundaries and more commitment to be here but to still keep those channels open so i'd say that my ancestors have always been a part of my life but in a way that i wasn't fully conscious of and so in the last five years i've been on a journey to become more conscious and more in direct relationship with uh my ancestors so uh with those who have died who've gone before me and those who are who are really deeply well in spirit and this isn't this isn't woo woo like this is if you talk to any intact cultural system there are some forms of ancestral connection and reverence that continue to happen and for many of us this has been disrupted and for those of us maybe of european ancestry because of the complexities of human history and wars and imperialism and our people whoever your people were maybe being torn away from their their land their homes the, the the teachings and the practices and the ritual technologies of coming together to tend to our dead have been disrupted and so in my own journey of reconnecting in and and also i i lead this work i support others both individually and and holding 3-day uh ritual workshops about helping people to come back into connection in spirit form with those of their ancestors who are deeply deeply well and to doing that reconnection and that healing work and 
this is a profound source of support for all of us. It allows us to, to, for one, feel more belonging in who we are, to come more fully into our own identity, to connect in with the tremendous gifts and strengths and medicines of our own people um, that we have an, a birthright to, like there are bones, there are blood, to also start clearing up any intergenerational trauma that all of us have in some way, shape or another that comes through the, the, the lineages. I mean, this is now scientifically being proven through epigenetics and through mm-hmm. like so many different avenues, right? And so, um, so in my own experience, it has been a profound source of support um, to connect in spirit with my own people, to do that healing work, to feel their support and to... Uh, to come more fully into who I am and to have a healthy sense of pride in my, in my people and also to walk more in, I guess, in right relationship, recognizing that but part of ancestral reconnection, I, I truly believe, is, is important for like healing justice in our times mm-hmm. um, when it comes to so many of the inequities and... Um, yeah, when it comes to so many of the inequities that are playing out in our world right now, uh, they can be a profound source of helping us to contribute meaningfully to healing, a culture, like larger cultural healing. Well, and we've gotten away from sharing stories about our ancestors, and we're, we've been a story culture for, for you know, thousands of years, and, and we've lost those stories. A lot of people don't even know their grandparents. Mm-hmm. One, one gift my dad gave us before he died is um, he, he wrote down just pages and pages and pages of stories of my grandpa that I never met and his wife and and his father and 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 I still have them today I just found them recently and reread them and just that connection just knowing the story so that perhaps that's a good starting point um I am one thing that did sort of trigger me as you were talking a little bit was what happens if there's people listening who come from a difficult ancestry perhaps their ancestors were something they don't want to remember or connect to or be defined by yes yes how can they how can they move forward with that knowledge great question i would say all of us have in our his in our ancestries um our own ancestors at times whether they've been perpetrators of violence and victims of violence uh you know i'm my people are of northern european descent on my father's side in the last 500 years there's been a lot of migration and religious persecution and um having to flee so we actually came to canada as refugees whereas on my mother's side my people were very privileged and i don't know the reason yet why we came over to north america but we have a lot of privilege there and we are definitely obviously a part of the colonial um, inequities that were happening. Uh, I don't know the details. So I would say all of us have certain lineages or different times within a lineage where these things are playing out. What I also say that all of us, if we go far enough back in time, also had people who were very connected with land, who the the teachings and the, the we were still very much in intact cultural ways and we can go back to that time this is beyond remembered names so it's not just about recognizing our our great grandparents and those that we know stories of but it's even before the story times we can reconnect in spirit with these ancient ones mm-hmm. and they can be a source of blessing and support and helping to heal up the disruptions in spirit that happened and by doing that work we can come to reconcile in our own hearts and bodies uh, this this healing work. And 
trauma lives in the body. And so, you know, if, if our people were the recipient of, uh, let's say, Roman Empire um, and were taken off their land and stripped of everything they knew, and then they come over to new lands, to North America, to Turtle Island, they then enact the same violence because they're still traumatized, mm -hmm. right? And so what we're seeing is uh, this intergenerational um, flow of, of trauma. And we can work in our own bodies, hearts and minds and in spirit to help reconcile those. And I know in my own experience, like it's part of the motivation of, uh, of how can I meaningfully contribute to social justice in these times? Um, and how can I be in right relationship with that? Hmm. Thank you. Yeah, and for people who don't connect as easily with these ideas, mm -hmm. which there's for sure many out there, but it's scientifically proven that trauma changes DNA. Absolutely. And even if it's a challenge to connect with one's ancestors, there's, there's hard evidence that your previous generational trauma is affecting you in ways that maybe you're not aware of. So for people who maybe don't connect as well, or mm -hmm. you, you spoke about being, having a spiritual, it's been a big piece of you since you were a child. For people who don't have that experience, how might they begin to understand this a little better? Or, or maybe there's a yearning to learn more about it. Where, yes. What What are some first steps people could take? Well, I mean... Do do some geneal genealogical research. Find out about your people. Find out about the experiences that they've lived through, and and just from that and reconnecting in with the stories of your people, you can start to recognize. You know, this was big for me. I I didn't know that my grand I never met my grandparents on my dad's side. They they died uh, before I was born. Um, but I'll share this because I think it's a just a good example to your question. Is uh, I had no idea. So they were in. Uh, southern U Ukraine. They were of a Mennonite ethnicity and faith, um, which I never recognized. I didn't grow up in that. But with the Bolshevik Revolution, I found out that my great-grandfather and my grandfather, who was 15 at the time, and his sister, they had to leave everything just like that. Hop on a train. They barely made it out. They had they they witnessed some of their friends being being shot. And they barely made it out. And and then made their way over to the Canadian prairies. Now, I didn't know any of this. And yet my whole life, I've been living with currents of grief that I could never name, a fear of persecution that I could never like put my, like, I just like, where is this coming from? Mm. And we also have like really bad hips. And what I've been shown is that these unprocessed trauma and grief has been harbored physically in our hips. And so there's been a lot of hip replacements in my family, that lineage. And so that's just an example of even without the spirit work, um, just starting to understand and dig through and start to find some of my own family stories. Um, it, what it does is it takes us out of an individual story and, and this individualistic culture and allows us to broaden our scope into a broader narrative of who we are. Yeah. I think it's a spectacular point about our individualistic culture mm -hmm. and the fact that we're just products. We're, we're very simply products of our ancestors. There's no 
yeah. other way about that we we are completely like mm. we are our parents and our parents are their parents and yes. it's just it, it's a collective equation so you know one of the burdens i feel after listening to this wonderful conversation is i can't believe we wait until people are almost dead before we talk about these kind of things mm. so really this conversation is really not about death it's about life it's about right now those three questions that that linda you said you ask yeah. we're going to put those in the show notes those should be asked immediately like by everybody hmm. and if we could only do all this stuff and be talking about this now which is why you I think did the conference in the first place then it would just make things so much it would make life so much easier and then ultimately when we get to end of life it would make that much easier and i'm kind of just realizing that as we're talking about it there's so much stuff here and it's amazing i'll yeah. have to go back and listen absolutely and and even the sense of uh giving that get those gifts to people coming next uh, living a full life and being fulfilled uh and the effect the legacy that will have on the the next people coming down the line mm -hmm. yeah it's amazing yeah i have a question for both of you and either of you can answer first but i'd love to hear both of your uh, opinions or, or response uh, where do you go to learn information to get information and gather tools that are non-mainstream in our very collectivist culture so for me, when I needed information and needed to know where to go, I asked, I started asking the person closest to me. And even though their answer might be mainstream, what would happen is something would, um, something they said or something they alluded to would lead me to the next person that I would ask. And so for me, it just goes back to being really curious. And I think what's great now is that there are so many amazing resources now that are available and teachers and um, guides and um, people who maybe you wouldn't have known about before or wouldn't have found out before. And one of the ways, of course, is the Deathly Matters Conference, because that just broke open a whole day full of here's all these amazing people with all these offerings. Um, but for me, I think it's just um, from one thing to the next thing to read more, to find more. And I feel very lucky that there are so many amazing resources now that are available because of the internet that aren't necessarily mainstream that maybe I wouldn't have known about before or maybe known been, they wouldn't have maybe been available to me. And now they are. Yeah. And you can let us know what those are. We'll put them in the show we notes. Will. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this may seem kind of cheeky, but sometimes what I do is I create the things that I most need. And mm -hmm. so when I, when we brought Sarah Kerr here and then when I initiated the holistic death care gatherings and brought in speakers and now Deathly Matters, it's because this is a need that I have. Mm -hmm. And I'm not coming into this because I'm any type of expert in any of this, to be honest. I don't, like, I'm learning. And so that's 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 how I'm learning. And I'm so grateful. The, the more I've been involved in creating the spaces for more conversations to happen, that recognizing this, we're not... We're doing something new in some senses, but nothing new in a lot of ways. These conversations and this work has been happening in our community by many people for many years. 
It's just creating the opportunities to surface their stories, to surface their experiences, and to learn from them. So I am continuously learning, and I'm so thankful for all of those who have been contributing and who have been showing up to our community mm-hmm. and show up to our conferences. Mm-hmm. And I know it's this is a, a boon of support for me as I'm now currently navigating you know, been navigating with my mom cancer for a long time, but the diagnosis now is more serious. And so, um, I, I have, I, yeah, I mean, I create a space so that (laughs) the answers may come to me. Maybe, (laughs) you know, it's Uh, like a death entrepreneurship. (laughs) (laughs) I know that's the best entrepreneurs Uh, is they create products and mm -hmm, businesses that mm -hmm. doesn't, don't exist and they need in their Mm -hmm. life. And you're doing that in, in matters of life and death, which Mm -hmm. is crucial and super exciting. Yeah, and it takes some courage to ask hard questions and go into a forum where you don't know and you're seeking out more knowledge and and being okay with the fact that I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what the outcome will be, but Mm -hmm. I, I need this in my life and I'm courageous enough to admit that and to put myself out there. And and it's really important. It's uh, people it's it's going back for the to the fear or love equation Mm. or question again Mm. is you know am i operating under fear and and holding back and what are the costs of that or what would happen if i operate with love and what benefits might that bring what's the best possible outcome yeah yeah that's a good question totally i'm curious how the two of you go about shutting off distractions or limiting beliefs in order to do the work that's really purposeful and meaningful in your lives. I can tell you that I meditate. It makes all the difference in the world. And the other thing that I have learned over time is that I do not multitask. I do one thing at a time I try to put my whole self into that one thing and then I finish it hopefully well and then I move on to the next thing. And I also set my intention every morning on the type of day that I would like to have, the type of walk I'd like to walk, the way I'd like to show up in the world. And I have become very good at, over time, um, crowding out the noise. So, and I... I'm really good at doing when I say about not multitasking. So when I drive, I don't drive and have a coffee and listen to a podcast. I drive. Mm -hmm. And when I do the dishes, I really just do the dishes. So I really try to lean into exactly what I'm doing, be there whole, you know, as a whole person. Um, And it and it works. And I just crowd out, crowd out the noise. And I think that with me, it's not with everybody, but with me, the older I get, and I'm getting up there. I have become very good at uh, discerning what is important and what matters. And I don't spend my time on the other things. Oh, I suck at that. (laughs) You're too young. No, I'm the absolute worst at not multitasking. Oh, it's brutal. Yeah. Brutal. So I think a lot (laughs) of people are. There's hope for me. (laughs) You know what? I think it comes from this idea that Shauna mentioned earlier about being productive. And I'm not about accomplishing. I I work hard and I do accomplish things. Don't get me wrong. And I'm productive. I can get stuff done. But I'm really more about the experience and being present and like not letting all that other stuff 
And I don't listen to those other voices about I should be doing this and I could be doing this. And, you know, I spend a lot of time by myself. I say no to a lot of things. And that's one of the that's one of the ways to not be totally distracted. I, I say no to lots of things. And then I end up creating space to say yes to the things that matter most to me. Which is why we're honored that you're here today. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I just have a, a quick follow-up question. I'll give you a little more time to think, Shauna. Um, what is the effect of that choice? What is of being fully present while washing dishes or while driving? What does that give you? It means that I have a better chance of doing that thing well. And it means that... I uh, am choosing every moment because we only have a finite number of moments. I'm choosing every moment how to spend them and who to spend them with. So it gives me peace for one thing mm-hmm. and reduces the stress or, you know, all the worry and, and the noise and all the other things that come crowding in. Yeah, it just it makes me feel like I'm doing the right things at the right time. It makes me think that you try and live your life as a meditation. Because that's because that's what I don't know if I can live up to that. Because that's what meditation <laughs> that sounds is, good though. is being in the moment, right? And, yeah. and recognizing what's happening, it's learning how to be present. Yeah. Wow. I am a proponent of the slow movement, mm, yeah. and this is the, another way in which the, um, I try to live um, my life. In that we, I have tried to slow everything down um, and distill it down to to like I said, what really matters, but also. I even though sometimes talk and walk quickly, I do not live quickly. So I purposefully live slowly, and I think it makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I wish I could say the same. <laughs> <laughs> this is very inspiring and something to continue striving for. I can say um, it's a constant. I'm not going to say challenge. It's a constant discernment and balancing act for me because I'm very cognizant of this wider, like, strive, strive, be productive. Because of this passion and love, I can tend to work too much. But that, what I will say, I have a lot of solo time. So my Shauna time is highly important to me. Um, I live in a beautiful space on my own, which is absolutely necessary for the work that I do in the world. And for my, it's my own sanctuary. I have my own spiritual practice. And I, th- and I think what really allows me to use that discernment, and I won't say that I'm not, I do, I do multitask. I've always been like that. I like the excitement of multiple hats to a certain degree. But I've always been very heart-led and intuitively led. And so um, I check in often. I, what feels good in this moment? What, uh, what, allow, what gives me a sense of an open heart rather than a constricted one? I check in with my body. And of course, there's moments where that doesn't happen. But that's a practice I try to continue to come back to. And I would say that being heart-led that way, that's why I've had such a circuitous route even to where I am now because I've I've always just followed that without really understanding why or what the... I've never been like a here's my five-year plan type of person. It's been very much just what is it in this moment? And I, I'm, for whatever reason, uh, I don't know why it is that I've always operated that way, but I'm seeing the blessings in it more and more in terms of just really being like, oh, what is it in this moment that this moment is asking of me or the situation and try to not spend so much time on Facebook and Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> and, and speaking of, I can almost guarantee that some of our listeners are thinking, I would love to get to the top of that mountain that you're describing. 
I don't even have equipment. I don't even know where to start. I'm, I'm lost at the bottom on my phone. Like, how, how can they get started to get to that point where, like you say, they can be be alone with themselves and not distracted and and notice the moments and do one thing well? How can we begin to create? I know it's a process for sure, right? <laughs> it's going to take a while, right? Please tell me. Um, but but what, what's a way we can get started? Because I think a lot of people can just say what you said, you know, oh, boy, I would love to do that. But, uh, you know, that's I'm diff- too busy. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's difficult. Mm-hmm. I can't even imagine getting to that point. Well, how can we begin perhaps a new habit of slowly getting us to that point where one day we can say, hey, I, I, I just uh, I, I did something. I did one thing well and I wasn't distracted. And mm-hmm. in addition to that, yeah. uh, I, I just get the sense of the, the hedonic treadmill that we're all yeah. that our society kind of steers us towards about pursuing the wrong things or pursuing I'm not one to say the wrong things, but pursuing pleasure or egoic gratification, mm. right. which is not always the same as joy or a deeper meaning. So mm-hmm. I wanted to add that in because that was a similar question that I had. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful question. And I, I think what comes to me in this moment is that just real uh, compassion to recognize that we are all swimming in this culture that... Um, that doesn't really support us in how to be uh, alone without equating it to loneliness. Mm. And so a lot of us may um, feel that to be alone means I'm lonely or unsupported. And so there can, I, I've, I see it in the culture, a bit of a frenetic, like I have to be doing, I have to be surrounded by people. And I don't want to say that that's um, an individual fault. It's one of the symptoms of living in this culture, and that's how it comes through. And so I think it's not just up to us individuals to try and think like, how, what, what better self care do I need? What am I doing wrong with you know? Because it can be really easy coming to again an individual endeavor, like oh man, I must not be up on my self-care regime and that's why I'm not being able to succeed in this way. It's like, well, what are the social systems around you that are supporting you or not supporting you? Um, What is your... I mean, we have to be very aware of our own social location, our own sense of privilege. I come from a privileged background. I carry a lot of privilege with me being, you know, a white cisgendered woman. And that has allotted me time to do, let's say, some personal work and growth work and intuitive work that another person may not have because we're living in a system that is inequitable and that has systemic oppressions in it. And so I just want to kind of, again, take take that view away from just an individual endeavor to like there's somehow I'm not getting up to the top of the mountain because I'm somehow at fault or I don't Mm. know how to put down my phone. It's like, well, wait a minute. Is there even a path that's been that is there a staircase that person has a staircase to the top i have a straight cliff yeah yeah you know and so so just i'm always looking at what are the broader systemic influences that are that we're all a part of and how do we bring acknowledgement and awareness to that so that that's my response rather than any practical like do this meditation is great i'm sure it's not something i do i dance that's my thing (laughs) yeah Yeah. dancing is a form of meditation yeah Yeah, and it's it's a great useful point that we all need to identify what is our most effective tool for gaining some clarity or presence it we talk about meditation a lot on the podcast, but meditation is not for everyone. Mm-hmm. We, no. we would 
perhaps recommend that everyone try it for 10 days and not just dismiss it because you can't say that it's not your tool if you've never tried it. Mm -hmm. But recognize yourself and give yourself what you need, whether it's dance or meditation or a long walk or a good book. But I love the idea of, of expanding it beyond just an in, in individual perspective to a communal and ancestral perspective is, yeah, that's very powerful. Did you have something you want to add, Linda? I'm not sure I can follow that. <laughs> but um, I wanted to say that for me, the, the way that I came, it's been a number of years, but the way I came to this sort of more slowly way, slow way of living um, for me was I started to recognize in myself that I didn't like how I was feeling. Uh, I felt rushed. I felt stressed. I felt not in control. I felt all those things as well as um, unwell at times. And so for me, what I started to ask myself, other than those three great questions that I use every day, I started to ask myself, how do I want to feel? What, what is my why? Why am I doing all these things? And I started to, you know, sort of get to know myself better and and asked myself really hard questions and I think part of it was that fear that I'm not enough and that I'm not doing enough and I could be doing more and I maybe did some comparison shopping and that wasn't that's not the way to live your life and it certainly wasn't serving me so I started to look at what would serve me better and for me it was this idea of letting go of all the other things and just concentrating on one thing at a time and doing it well and slowing it all down in a world that does not go very slowly hmm. Uh, a question I'm curious about is when you picture your own end of life, what, what do you picture? What do you see and what would you like what would you like to happen? We actually did this exercise as uh, we had one of the speakers at the Victoria Holistic Death Care community. And we actually did this exercise. Perfect. It's really quite something to do. And sometimes I think we're surprised by, when you do the exercise, you're surprised sometimes by the answers. And for me, I didn't really have a lot of, um, like the questions were, you know, who, who is with you, who is not with you? Where are you? What are you? What are you smelling right now? What are you tasting right now? And I had answers for some of those questions, but for me, really, I just felt love. And I know that's my favorite word and mm -hmm. I use it a lot and I operate from a place of love as much as I can, but I, yeah, and I'm honestly, I would like to think, and I'm not there, of course, I'd like to think I'm open to whatever that is. So whatever it looks like when it comes, I'd really like to embrace it and welcome it and say hello. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, if, I, I, I hope phrase. I can do that. I hope I can do that. I like the mm -hmm. idea of being open. We had a past guest call herself an openist, and, mm. and, I, and I love that. Mm -hmm. I love that term. And, and I'm stealing that. Yeah, <laughs> go ahead and take it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this is this is a question that I ponder in many different ways. And, you know, maybe this is going to be a bit unexpected, but this whole this idea of a good death, I I question. Um, I think, as we said earlier, like death is a mystery and it's powerful mm -hmm. and none of us will ever truly know. We can become prepared. And I think that's important. We can approach it with open conversations and and love. And but we none of us will ever truly know how we will die and how we die is not a reflection of the quality of our life so someone can be the most ethical loving person in their life and they still die a traumatic death mm -hmm. and yet yeah. let's ensure that that doesn't reflect on the quality of their living and their life and so for me 
uh, when I think about this question, and this is likely because of my own orientation uh, and this whole spiritual grief thing that I went through, but when I think about my dying, I think about who's going to be there when I drop my body and welcome me, me in, mm-hmm. and what will that, what will my rite of passage look like? And how do I help ensure that all those who came before me are deeply well in spirit so that when I, this is the image I get, when I die, I, some people have these beautiful images of like the river and stuff. And mine's an airplane. Um, so I get on the airplane, I've dropped my body and, you know, maybe I'm looking out the window and the people who are left behind are waving at me and I'm like, okay, good. I've been remembered. I've been loved. Awesome. So the plane can take off then. Mm. And I'm in transition to wherever it is I'm meant to go. And I have time to start kind of integrating like, okay, I don't have a body. What is this whole thing? This is a whole new rite of passage for me. And what's important to me is that when I land, not only do I know, okay, I'm in the land of the dead or whatever that that is, the language is tricky, it's weird, but that when I get off the plane and enter that sliding door into the airport, that I actually have all the people who came before me who are familiar mm-hmm. and who are sitting there with signs yeah. saying, welcome home, Shauna. Oh, we have your luggage. Yeah. You can just drop into our arms. Mm. We have you mm. and we're going to tend to you. And we know where we're going Hmm. rather than showing up and with just a sea of unfamiliar faces, right? So that to me is what I anchor into. And that's what I support people to also navigate is is how do we navigate post-death, both for the people left behind grieving and then also supporting those who are actually on their rite of passage that is death. So that's a beautiful note to begin to close the conversation. And I'm curious whether... Either of you may have any final gifts or offerings to our listeners who have, I can only imagine, learned a great deal as we have from our last hour and a half or so of conversation. In terms of if we're talking end of life and sort of that whole circle of what we've been talking about today, from what I've learned in some of the work that I've been doing and the people that I've shared time with, I would say People need to be gentle with themselves and kinder to themselves. There is no right way to do this. Um, And I think that I would suggest to everyone when you need help or feel like you want help, reach out because there is so much help available and there is a community waiting to hold you up. Yeah, and it doesn't uh, doesn't take away from yourself to ask for help. It, It only adds to yourself. That's why we live in a community. That's why we're social beings. And this is why I love working with Linda, because that's exactly what was coming through to, to say also. It's just so much compassion. Like, just hold all of this in compassion for yourself, for others, and, you know, continue meeting the moment in the best ways you can and get that support. So compassion to all of it. And Linda, I'm guessing some of our listeners were thinking, oh, there's a community for this. Is it like www. Like, what, what specific community are you referring to, perhaps? Um, so if they, if they want to reach out to the community, like obviously we'll put both your websites uh, on, on our show notes. Yeah, so, so where can people both connect with the two of you? Where is the best place to do that? And, and are the, there any other resources or yeah, communities that might be helpful? Uh, yeah. So yeah, definitely reach out um, to either Linda or I. You can visit uh, Deathly Matters in terms of seeing 
who has been contributing to to that vision in terms of what they're offering as speakers. If you're in the greater Victoria or Vancouver Island area, um, there is ongoing a Victoria Holistic Death Care Gatherings. You can find us on Facebook also. Those gatherings are not once a month anymore. They're about once every two months, but it's a place to convene with other people. Really friendly, welcoming, personable, uh, informal like let's sit in circle we usually have a speaker come uh, sometimes it's just uh, a series of questions to connect on um, and we're seeing we're seeing this resurgence of of you know the death movement this grassroots reclaiming movement and it's happening uh, in many places so wherever you are um, get on good old Google and I'm sure you'll find things and if not reach out to one of us and we'll support that too and and perhaps people like yourself if they're curious and they don't see that community that has already been started perhaps that they could be a catalyst for beginning it well and speaking of community we released an episode three hours ago on this day called doing life better and there's six individuals on there who are part of this community and we've also linked the deathly matters on that as well so if you haven't listened to that episode yet come on folks what you do <laughs> well i think it's called doing death better but yeah. as we've learned isn't that what i said nope said but doing life better, better yeah. which is so apropos yeah. isn't exactly that, isn't that funny wow. they're one and the same mm-hmm. okay yeah we don't want to do life better let's do death better <laughs> <laughs> let's do both sure let's aim high but one at a time as as linda would say yes for sure <laughs> start with life with presence <laughs> Amazing. Well, this was a, it exceeded all expectations. It was uh, truly a pleasure and an honor to have both of you in the room together. It was a great idea to have the two of you united as you are a team. And um, yeah, our first two on two, everybody won, I would say. Mm -hmm. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Gratitude to you both. Thanks. Well, that's the episode. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. We appreciate your time and attention. If we can make one request, please subscribe. How do you do that, John? They push subscribe. That's all you got to do. We also got social media, guys. We've got Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Please like us and follow us there. We also got a really fancy website. ObstacleCoursePodcast.com. That is the one. It's where you'll find our show notes and lots of other goodies. And if you have somebody who'd be great for the podcast, please let us know. Send us a message on any of those networks and we'll bring them on. Mm-hmm. For sure. We're always looking for good people. Thanks for listening. Keep pushing through those obstacles.